0: Good morning, 11 o'clock, how we doing? Oh, I hope you, uh, yeah, I hope you had a very happy Halloween or if you grew up in church culture, a happy harvest festival or a fall festival or a trunk or treat or whatever your word of choice to replace that is. My name is Jerry, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're here for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. Now, I'm going to start off a little bit differently and only for this service, so you guys are special. This is my lovely wife, Megan, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, wow, I have never gotten that loud of a pop. (laughs) Now, Megan is pregnant with our third child. And we decided to do something a little bit different. She's holding an envelope, unbeknownst to us, that has the gender of our child in there. So we wanted to know if you guys would be cool, if you guys would be part of our gender reveal here as we go in. So... So if you would, drum roll, please. You ready? No. <laughs> it's a boy! We're having a boy! We're having a boy! That's awesome. awesome. Yeah, we're having a boy. Another boy! Look at that! We're gonna we're gonna have a little Apollo Creed Carrias. It's gonna be so nice and so good. I have two boys. I'm gonna need to invest in more insurance for my house (laughs) as we. Wow, it's now starting to set in. I'm gonna. You know, we need to pray. I think. I have two boys. Let's pray. Father, um, what a gift that I get to stand with my church family and celebrate what you're doing in our lives, Lord. As we jump into this time of teaching, as we continue to celebrate who you are, Father, the word that you've been giving me all week and for our church is the word passion. Jesus, you have called us to be a people that are passionate about you, that are passionate about pursuing you in our lives, that are passionate about pursuing you with one another. And so I pray today as we continue our series, as we continue to learn from the, early, from the early church, I pray that I as the communicator become less. I pray that you as our Messiah become more. And I pray that we all walk out of here with a true growth of passion for you. And we pray all this in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. 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 Well, again, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you again, but I want to take just a few moments to bring you up to speed in the series we've been in. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Sent Life on Mission. And what we've been doing in this series, it's been a study in the, one of the biggest books in the New Testament, the, book of, the books of, book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostle. Now, Acts was written by a man named Luke. And we know some important things about Luke's life. We know that he was an educated man. He was a doctor by trade. He was a writer. We also know that Luke was a Christ follower. We know that he was a Gentile, meaning not of Jewish descent, And Luke was a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter, who, excuse me, of the Apostle Paul, and Paul went on to write the majority of our second half of the Bible, the New Testament. Now what Luke is doing is he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And now that I'm having a son, that sounds like an epic name to potentially name him. (laughs) He's writing to a man named Theophilus. And what he's doing over the course of two volumes is that one, he's writing to Theophilus and he's he's giving an account of Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry. Collected, we call that the gospel of Luke. But secondly, what he's doing then through the book of Acts is he's giving this gentleman a carefully researched account of what the first 30 years of the new movement of Jesus looked like, how the gospel began in Jerusalem and started spreading out. Out into the Roman Empire, how it began in the Jewish community and began spreading out into the Gentile community. And so that's what we're in in Luke. And if you've been with us, Mike has been using this awesome analogy to think of Luke and to think of Acts as season one and season two of the same television show. And if you think about a serialized show such as Lost or such as 24, to enjoy the payoffs or the climaxes in later seasons, you need to know what came before it right? Because it builds off of each other. So similarly, Luke and Acts were designed to be read together because they build off of each other. And Luke, our author, is often referring to what took place in season one of Acts. So, over these last two weeks in particular, we've been looking at a huge turning point, not just for the believers, but for all of human history, what happened at Pentecost. Now, if you remember, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit arrived, and Peter began to preach, and in his preaching, he was explaining what was happening, why the Spirit had come, but also, last week, we looked at, he wanted to be very clear, this is only happening because Jesus Is Messiah. And so today, as we move away from Pentecost, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see the answer to the question what happens next? Because what we see for these early believers is that Pentecost was not a momentary high. Or in the youth ministry world, we'd call it a camp high, meaning this very cool experience that fades away and dissipates after a few days. What we see is that Pentecost was a turning point that changed everything. And now these adult believers are looking to create a new life individually built around Jesus, but also they are now creating a New community that is built on the foundation of Jesus as well. So, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. If you're following along in your note sheet, there's a section titled The New Beginning. And we're going to be going to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 42. And Luke writes, they devoted themselves, now they being the new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So let's stop and unpack this a little bit. First of all, if you have the ability to underline or highlight in your books or your apps, would you, make a, would you underline the word devoted? You put a box around it, star it, arrows, put little flames, anything that would attract your attention to it. Because the word devoted is the key word for this entire section of scripture. See, if you are devoted to something or someone, it implies that that's not something you simply do, right? If you are devoted to something, the word I like to use to describe devotion is the word passion. We are not devoted to that which bores us. We are not devoted to that which angers us or frustrates us. We are devoted, we are excited, we are passionate towards that which we believe in and we develop commitments into it. And so what I want you to see is that these new believers had a passion for Jesus being the Messiah. And now that passion, now that devotion was leading them to restart their lives and to build it on a new foundation. And so in that first verse, Luke lists out four key things that they are passionate about, they are devoted to, and these four key things are the foundation of their new lives and their new community. And so let's look back at those 4. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles were teaching that Jesus is Messiah. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were showing through Scripture, and they were showing through their witness and testimony that Jesus is Messiah. So the early believers were passionate and excited about that. They were also devoted to fellowship. Now, fellowship is a very churchy word, isn't it? If you think of fellowship, oftentimes many people will think of, well, that's Christians hanging out, right? You think of these images of fellowship that after a service, you go to the church basement and you enjoy cookies and punch together. And we sit there and go, that's fellowship. Now hear me clearly, yes. An aspect of fellowship is hanging out, but that is not the totality of fellowship. In fact, in the original language, when you go to the Greek, what they meant by fellowship was something much deeper. What they meant by fellowship was now they had a common bond because of Jesus the Messiah. Now they were united by that, and the way they looked at each other was not simply strangers, acquaintances, or even friends but now they viewed the other believers and they felt a responsibility to one another. Now, I'm going to unpack that more later, but keep in mind that word, they had a responsibility to one another. The third thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now, there's some scholars that think this means they took communion, and that could well have been a part of it, but the majority of scholars take this as meaning that they simply shared meals, which means they were believers after my own heart. They ate and they enjoyed eating. And the reason why many scholars believe that is because that phrase is a very Jewish phrase. It was very common in Jewish culture to break bread and to give thanks before a meal very similar to how many of us before a meal we pray and we give thanks. And so here's something that's, that's, that's incredibly unique about that. What we're starting to see is that their pursuit of Messiah, their worship of Jesus was now taking place beyond the temple walls. Because if you think about it, the breaking of bread, the having of meals is a very everyday and ordinary act, is it not? And so what we're starting to see in the community of the early believers is that pursuing God was something that wasn't just happening at set times at the temple, but it was now starting to happen in the everyday and the ordinary of their lives. And on that note, the fourth thing they devoted themselves to was prayer. And what I love about this is up until this point, they were very much raised that you needed an intermediary to talk to God for you. Now, because of Messiah, because of what Jesus has done, they have individually and collectively unrestricted access to Jesus. They can talk to Jesus when they're at the temple. They can jock to Jesus when they're at home. They can talk to Jesus whenever they're walking the community. They can talk to Jesus alone. They can talk to Jesus with their friends, with their family, wherever. And so we see that they desired a core mark of their new lives and their new community to be one in which they engaged in communication with God. But the other aspect of prayer that I love is they didn't do that to abandon corporate worship. Part of, this, the part of what they devoted themselves to is they were still proud of their Jewish heritage as they should have been. They didn't go, oh, we're Christ followers now. Let's give up all of our years of heritage and everything. They would still go to the temple and pray with their Jewish brothers and sisters at set times as they were supposed to. But the difference was unlike before where they were praying in hope the Messiah was come. Now they were praying with the joy the Messiah has come. He is alive and he is Jesus. And so they were passionate about the foundation of their lives, again, individually and collectively, to be these four things. And then they continue, and then Luke continues to describe what the community was like. Verse 43: "Everyone was filled with awe at the, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles." Think about what it means to be in awe of something or someone. The way I like to define it, if you're in awe, it just stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? If you're in awe, it just stops you completely and what's usually going through my head is this is one of the greatest experiences I have ever had in my life. See, a common example that many of us share is have you ever had that example of being in awe while you're in nature? Maybe you've made it to that summit and you just look out Maybe you've been in that national park and just see these beautiful forest. Maybe you've been at the right time on a beautiful beach and just looked out and went, whoa. See, what's amazing about the awe that these new believers were feeling, experiencing, was not an awe that found its source in the signs and the wonders that the apostles were doing. See, the Holy Spirit was empowering the apostles to do these signs and wonders to confirm their message See, these early believers were in a constant state of awe because Jesus is Messiah. That was the source of their awe. That was spectacular to them. And now they were reorienting their entire lives over the greatest news they had ever discovered. And now what Luke's gonna do in the next couple of verses, he's gonna show us that another core theme of this early community was the theme of unity. And so looking at verse 44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. Now, let's stop right there. Everything in common does not mean that they now became identical to one another. It did not mean that they abandoned a type of individuality and now dressed alike, enjoy the same music, spoke the same way. What it's saying is that they now were unified, whether they knew each other or not, but they were now bound together because of Jesus. And so if you think about it, you had Jews from all sorts of different places. You had different backgrounds, different stories, different economics, uh, different experiences, different biases, different interests, but now they were all had a commonality that Jesus is Messiah. So there's a beautiful diversity in their commonality. And Luke goes on to say in verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Remember, I've been talking about that they felt a responsibility to one another. And so what they were starting to see early on in their community was that there was economic need in some of the new believers. And this was because of two reasons. One, the religious establishment is not happy to see the movement of Jesus grow and to continue. And so the religious establishment was making it economically difficult for believing Jews in Jerusalem to live about their everyday lives. Think of examples that they were making it to where they couldn't go shop at certain places or they were raising the prices unfairly on them. So there was need for these believers and other believers helped them out. But then also you had many early believers who were pilgrims, who did not live in Jerusalem. And the way I like to think about it is when you go on vacation with your family, you have a vacation budget, right? When your vacation budget is out, what do you do? You go home, For many of these early believers, they came to Jerusalem because it was one of the biggest Jewish festivals. You pilgrim three times a year. They expected to leave when it was over, but now that they encountered Messiah, now that their life was changed, before they go back home, they want to sit under the discipleship of the apostles. They want to be equipped in this early community so then they could take the truth of Jesus to their homes and their families and their cities. So the other believers were stepping up as they saw their need. But what's amazing to me about this responsibility they felt to each other is this was a voluntary giving. When they gave their life to Jesus, the first rule wasn't automatically, okay, sell everything you have, let's compile our money together in one big pile and everybody has access to it. Because what we're gonna see in the later verses is that they were meeting in homes that they owned. They were sitting around and still continued their careers, but when they saw a need They didn't hesitate to take care of one another. And so as we continue that theme, Luke again is giving us the passage of time in verse 46. Every day, the early believers, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you jump back to the beginning of verse 46, I'd love for you to uh, underline or highlight that first phrase, every day. Because this is the example this new community is giving us. That worshiping, praising, living out their faith was not something they did for two hours on the weekend. This was not something they did maybe during a weekend service and then on their way to life group at some point during the week. This is what they did with regularity. Every day they were now testifying, listening to teaching, being reminded that Jesus is Messiah, praying, worshiping, living more in that. And I love, the exam- I love how Luke describes it. Because of that, they were glad. Again, when we dig into the Greek, what it means that they were glad, it means that as they are reorienting their new lives around Jesus, they are seeing Jesus moving in their every day. They are seeing Jesus move at the temple, but they are seeing Jesus move in their everyday and the ordinary at work, at home, and everywhere in between. And that was firing them up. And then it says that they enjoyed the favor of all people in verse 47. And there's two ways we can look at that. The first way is that they were not simply talking about Jesus being the Messiah, but they were living out this new testimony. They were living out this witness that he is who he said he is, and I'm going to rearrange my entire life around that. And what started happening was other people were taking notice. Other people were starting to see that their lives were starting to revolve around this. It was becoming attractive. Wait, why are you, why are you doing that? It's because of what you believe? Why? Why? And they started having the favor of other people. But also, favor means something internal for them. What it meant was that as God has changed them, they were so excited about discovering that Jesus is Messiah that they wanted the other Jewish brothers and sisters who had yet to discover that to know. And so it meant that these early believers now had a new passion for the others, they had a new passion for those that didn't believe yet. They had a passion and a fire and wanted to be present in their lives to be able to be a living witness that Jesus is Messiah. And so that's our passage today. And so what I want to do as we I wanna do as we move on from it is they built their lives on some core foundations. And I like to sum it up in one statement. And so we'll start from there and then move on. So, there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you've got a section titled The Foundation of Community. And your fill in is this Devotion to Jesus is a lifestyle. Devotion to Jesus for the early believers was a lifestyle. What I mean by that is devotion to Jesus, as I referred to earlier, was not something they did for simply a few hours and then walked away from it. Their devotion and their passage was how they lived their lives. Here's another way I'm going to put it, and this is going to be a recurring theme for the time that we have left. They very much lived their lives in a way where they weren't simply what I call all-talk Christ followers. Christ followers. They didn't just worship and follow Jesus with what they said. Words are an important part of it, but they backed it up with their lives. They weren't all talk, they were living witnesses. Now, have you ever had a friend or a family member in your life that's all talk? They're always talking about things they're going to do and they're going to accomplish, and it sounds great and sometimes even well thought out, but they never do it. Let me take one step further. Have you ever been that person? I definitely have been that person. When I was really, really young, there was one thing I knew I wanted to learn how to play guitar. I wanted to be, I wanted to lead a band. I wanted to, I had these images in my head of uh, doing covers of some of my favorite bands like Nirvana or Queen or anything like that. I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to be awesome. And especially when I got to junior high, I would talk to anybody that would listen to me, friends, strangers, teachers, man, I'm going to play guitar. I'm going to be in a band. Me and my friends were talking about it all the time. We we're naming our bands and we're talking about our tour and the merch we're going to sell and how we're going to be super, super famous. And it was awesome. But there was one problem. I was always talking about it, but I never actually did it. I never actually went through the process of learning how to play guitar. Man, I talked a good game. And if somebody listened to me about my dreams and ideal, they probably were excited too. But words are meaningless without the actions to back them up. And so this was going on for years and years and years. And finally, when I was about 20, I want to say, I bought my first guitar. Have you ever walked into a Sam Ash when you're not a musician? It's like being on another planet. So I pointed at a guitar, I took it home, and for three solid nights, I was learning how to play, and then it became a permanent fixture in my garage. Why? Because I was all talk. Because I didn't back it up. See, to these early believers that were changed by the truth of Jesus Messiah, they didn't want to be all talk. Jesus was not something they simply did or participated in every once in a while. Being a follower of Jesus was now their identity. It was now who they are. And this was huge for the Jewish believers. Because if you were here last week, you remember that we talked about to the Jewish nation... Using the word Messiah was not something they just tossed out. This had a huge significance and huge reverence for them. And so understand what they're emotionally experiencing. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is putting his spirit in me. Where the spirit dwells is the temple of God. That means I am now the temple of God. That means when I'm worshiping God at the temple, he is present. But when I leave these walls, God is still present, which means every aspect of my life has the opportunity to become a holy moment. And what was true for them is true for us today. The Holy Spirit they received is the Holy Spirit that you have received if you've given your life to Jesus. And we often view our interaction with God in the finite, that we come to this place, we come and we worship, and then we leave, it's over. But the truth of the Holy Spirit is this building is not church because it's a magical building, it's church because of you. And when you leave this place and get in your car, when you go to The Habit, when you go to Costco, when you go back home, those places are church because of you. When you go to the good times in your life or you go to the bad, when you go to school or work or wherever you go tomorrow, those places are church because of you, because the Spirit is with you, because we were created to live our faith in a lifestyle, not in the finite and so that's the example that they're showing us. And that's the example they're broadening our definition of what it means to be a people that are repentant. Remember last week, when they heard the, new, the, the message of Jesus, they responded to Peter, what do we do? And Peter's response was, repent. And sometimes we have this image of repentance of an angry God who's wagging a finger in your face and he wants you to repent because he wants you to know how horrible you are but that's not what repentance is that's why i always refer to it as repentance is a beautiful act because what happens in repentance is we acknowledge that jesus is messiah and lord of our lives What happens in repentance is we ask the God of the universe to wash us clean from our sins. He changes us from the inside out. We go from being literal darkness to now being light to being his living children of God. We are no longer dead and now we have his spirit. And what I love most about repentance is repentance is not a one and done act, but it is a beautiful beginning of an eternal journey we fall to our knees in repentance as dead sinners. We are risen by a Messiah as living, breathing children of God to start something new. And like these early believers, again, remember, they weren't children. They were adults of different ages with different backgrounds and different stories. But they had all united under the teaching that Jesus is Messiah. So now these adults were starting their lives over. And they realize my life before was being lived by me or being lived by the tyranny of the urgent or by distraction and sin. Now I want to live my life based on Jesus the Messiah. And so what happens in repentance is they experience a milestone. They gave their lives to Jesus and now they were never the same again. And that's the truest definition of a milestone in our life, isn't it? It's an experience that changes us forever. If you think of certain milestones, think of graduating high school or college. You did it, you're not going back. Think of getting married or becoming a parent. You're not going back. Think of of hard milestones, like losing someone to a disease or death, like the end of a relationship or divorce or having to move away. There's many milestones where we can look at our lives and go, I'm a new person because of this. There is no going back. And what the early church is modeling for us is that Jesus is the ultimate milestone. When he changes us, it's the beginning, and now we have a new foundation. And so Luke accounts for us that the early church was building Jesus as their foundation. And so what they sought to do was they sought simply to live as Jesus lived, to reflect his character. And the way they did that, if you look at the passage we we were going over, is they were living out what Jesus himself said was the most important thing you could do with your life. Love God and love people. They were now living out the greatest commandment. On your note sheet, I take you back to season one in Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he responded with Old Testament quotations, and I love Jesus' response. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is what we were created to be. We were created to be people that reflected who our Messiah is. We were created to value and prioritize what he valued and prioritized. And so for these believers, this was now the foundation of their individual lives and their community. And so that's the big picture. And so what I want to do with the time we have left is I want to look at three practical steps that they modeled that we can apply to our lives today. And what I like about these practical steps is that they're for all believers See, there are certain aspects about their experience that was their experience that we're not called to replicate exactly. But I do feel that these three steps are steps that all believers, wherever we are, can build our foundation on. But here's the other thing I want to note before we go into these steps. The big heart behind this example, do you notice that they are changing their lives? They are reorienting their lives. They are driven to that change by joy and not by obligation. See, sometimes we fall into this trap that we try to motivate ourselves to be better Christ followers by telling ourselves how awful we are at it. Sometimes we try to motivate ourselves through guilt. Sometimes other people do that to us. They wag a the finger in the face, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And I think we can all rhetorically know, we can all rhetorically relate to the fact that guilt is not a good motivator. What's amazing about these early believers is you don't see guilt as their motivator. What's even more amazing is undoubtedly there were people in that community who months earlier were screaming, crucify him at Jesus. But they had been forgiven, they had been healed, and they were moving forward, not backwards, because of guilt. And so as we look at these steps, there's many of us, myself included, that maybe the Holy Spirit will stir. Maybe we'll feel conviction, conviction maybe we will honestly go, you know, maybe that's not an area where I'm living to the fullest. But here, the reasoning behind why the Holy Spirit does it, it's not to remind you of how horrible you are, but it's to show you that God wants to take you somewhere better. And so on your note sheet, there's a section titled, Living Out Your Devotion. And the fil- your first fill-in is, Make Jesus Your Ultimate Priority. Make Jesus your ultimate priority. Our priorities in our lives, think about what your priorities are. Our priorities are that which we value, that which we consider to be very important, right? And in fact, the truth is we have multiple priorities in our lives, Many of us, our priorities are things like family, friends, relationships, our faith, um, our health, our image, our jobs, our careers. We could go on and on and on. And some priorities are awesome, some priorities are damaging, but we all have many priorities. But the question I want you to reflect on is, out of all of your priorities, which is your ultimate priority? Because what I mean by that question is, we all have one priority that supersedes every other one. We have one that I would call our ultimate. And what that means is our ultimate priority is the foundation of our lives, meaning we will build upon it and all of our other priorities will flow out of it. Whatever our ultimate priority is, dictates a lot the direction of our lives. And so, what we see in Luke's account of these early believers was that Jesus was not simply a priority we see that he was the priority of their lives. And as they discovered Jesus is Messiah and they were rebuilding new lives as they put Jesus down as the foundation, now they intentionally were acting to make everything else flow out of that See, often we try to fit Jesus into our lives. He's a priority. Often we try to cram him in. Okay, I I went to church, done. I did did some God time, done. I, I rushed it, but I thought about it. Now I can move on. But to the example of these believers, is that not how they operated? He was their foundation. And so now with Jesus as the cornerstone, they would look at their whole lives and go, okay, now what does this mean for my relationships? Now that Jesus is my foundation, what does this mean for my relationships, my dating relationships, my marriage, my friendships, my parent relationship, my kids? What does this mean for my relationships? With Jesus in my foundation, what does this mean for my job and my career? How I'm supposed to approach it? What heart I'm supposed to have for it? What does this mean for the way I worship? What does this mean for how I deal with conflict and anger? Do you see that their lives are now being built upon Jesus, the Messiah, as ultimate priority? He was not getting lost in the shuffle. This was a turning point in their lives. Because If you reflect on what your ultimate priority is, it's going to tell you if you have a big or a small view of Messiah. If you reflect on what your ultimate priority is, it's going to show you how big Jesus the Messiah is in your life. Because if you have a big view of Messiah, he will be ultimate. But if you have a small view of Messiah... He will be present. And we may not use these words out loud, but we will live our lives in a way that says, I will get to Jesus when the actual important stuff is done. When the actual stuff that's going to benefit my life, when the actual stuff that's going to help my family when the actual stuff that's going to provide and support, when all of that's done, then I'll go to church. Then I'll spend some time in scripture. Then I'll do this because he's a priority, but he's not that big of a priority. And so I like how A.W. Tozer puts it in your notes. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. The example we're given through Luke's writing is, again, we cannot be a community that simply lip-services Jesus is our ultimate. We need to be a community that is now backing that up with the way we live our lives. Are we lip-service Christ followers? Or are we actual witnesses? I like to illustrate it in this way, Back in the 80s, there was a movie that came out, I think around 1986, that um, was a masterpiece. Everybody held it. It changed movies from that point on. It was a movie called Top Gun. And if you've never, if you've never seen Top Gun, it will it'll absolutely change your life. And... Um, I was introduced to Top Gun by some great friends when I was much, much younger, and to this day I have most of that movie memorized. But there's one scene near the beginning in particular in Top Gun when Tom Cruise, a baby faced Tom Cruise, although that guy never seems like he ages, does he? But like a baby faced Tom Cruise, Maverick, is standing next to Goose, so awesome already, and they're being yelled at, they're being yelled at by a commanding officer. And he's just letting them have it. And there's one phrase that he says that has always stuck with me. He tells Tom Cruise, your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. (laughs) And as a recovering narcissist, that is a phrase that has always stuck with me. But especially when I think about my faith. Am I a Christ follower that talks a big game about Jesus? But that doesn't take steps to back it up with my life. So how do we start to apply this point? Well, it's hard to apply anything if we don't know what our starting point is. And so there's a lot of different ways to, to start think, evaluating your priorities and what's ultimate in your life. But one way to start would be to evaluate your time. Where's your time go? Because that usually shows you your priorities. And specifically, evaluate your time when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. Is your relationship with Jesus something that takes precedent in your schedule? Is your relationship with Jesus something that happens regularly, collectively and individually? Is your relationship with Jesus feel like it's always rushed? It's always in the car on the way to something, or it's kind of getting like the C grade of your life? Is your relationship with Jesus something that's non-existent? Parents, real quick, just to address you as a parent myself, what kind of example of that are we setting for our families? We need to evaluate what is our priority in our lives. Now, I imagine to say something like that, there's a bunch of us in here that don't feel good anymore. (laughs) Please remember what I said earlier. This is not to guilt. Guilt has no place here. But this is for Messiah to lead us to something better. And so whatever you might be sitting and going, well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. Well, now we have a new opportunity because there's no time like now. So that's the first practical. The second practical is that now that if we put Jesus as our ultimate foundation, it impacts how we interact with other people. And the second fill-in is this, engage with other believers, We were created for relationship. That means as created beings, we were created for community. We were created to have a relationship with God. We were created to have a relationship with one another. We were not created to live in isolation. And so I like going back to verse 44 where it says all the believers had Jesus in common. It was something that unified them. It was a bond that they all had. So what we see is very different than what can happen sometimes in church culture today is that church culture can become a movie theater experience. And what I mean by that is I love movies. I love going to a movie theater. But one of the things that drives me crazy is once the movie starts playing, anybody that talks, because that's a secret space. You're allowed to talk before the movie. You're allowed to talk after the movie. Respectfully during the movie, shut up, because that's what we're there to experience, But if you think about a movie theater experience, it works for movies. You show up, you watch, you leave. There's not a whole lot of interaction. You know, people sometimes clap at the end, but they can't hear you. There's not a whole lot of interaction going on. But sometimes that starts to become the reflection of our church communities. We show up, we listen, we leave without any type of interaction. And so what we see modeled by the early believers is their community was built on something radically different. And so just like Jesus had to reorient our view of him, Jesus also has to reorient our view of one another. And so remember I've been using the word responsibility? The reason why the believers felt a deep responsibility, a fellowship towards one another, is because now, because of the risen Messiah, they viewed each other as family. That's a churchy phrase we need to take back because it's easy for people to just kind of throw that out there. Yes, the church is the family of God. Yes, the church is the family of God. But that runs much deeper than we often imply it to be. See, for some of you here, the word family in and of itself brings up good memories, For some of you, admittedly, the word family brings up difficult and painful memories. What we need to see in this reorientation is not just to see each other as family, but to see family as defined by Messiah. See, at its purest definition, family is people you are bound to for eternity. So get used to these faces. At its purest definition, family is people you are bound to for eternity, but it's also people who have your back and you have their back. That is the definition of family. For these early believers, they saw that to be the responsibility to take care of their family, and that was a game changer for them. They went from strangers, acquaintances, neighbors, to family from God's perspective. And the reason why we need to take this back is one of the biggest damages sin has done in our world. One of the biggest thing enemy has done is he has devalued the idea of family, meaning that as a society, we view family as something you quit, We view family as something you abandon. When it gets hard, we leave. When it gets hard, we run. And that bleeds into all of our relationships and especially our church relationship. See, being family doesn't mean it's always rosy and perfect. Family is messy. Family is hard. Family is a paradox because at the same time, family is awesome and frustrating, Family is a paradox because at the same time, you can love and hate somebody in your family. (laughs) Family is a paradox, but this game changer is Jesus is our Father. And like He has shown time and time again, He is in it to win it with you. He will never leave you, forsake you, or abandon you. And now He's asking the new community of believers to live that out amongst one another. We're family. And that changes everything. That changes everything. And so the question that's being presented for us is that we're not here to learn how to interact with church folk. We're here to learn, and it is a learned skill. We're here to learn how to engage with family. In the good and in the bad. You know, I was thinking about this over the summer. My wife, Megan, who was just up here, she uh she, her side of the family, her, her family was having a family reunion up in Oregon, and there were a lot of different schedules and other issues. I wasn't able to attend myself. So Megan, at the time, being nine weeks pregnant, with two children under four, by herself, did the two-day, 15-hour drive to Oregon. It's crazy. She's the toughest woman alive, because I would have never done that. And... Because I would have never done that, I kept talking to her leading up to this trip. No, no, like, don't do this. Like, this is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. Like, don't do this. Don't go through with this. And I remember she stopped me in my tracks where she just looked at me and joyfully said, yeah, it's going to be tough, but this is what you do for family. The example of these believers is to engage. The amount of the believers is to be there in the good, but also to be there in the stuff. The example of these believers is to appreciate and love our beautiful diversity. The example of these believers is to begin reclaiming in a spiritual way what it means that we are family. So let me ask you, how are you engaging with your family? Because if you've given your life to Jesus, like it or not, you're stuck with us. So how are you engaging with your family? Now, let's just look inside these walls because what we start to do here will start to have a significant impact with how we engage with family out there. So how are you engaging when you come to service? You're here. Awesome. You're already taking a step. But we often wait for somebody else to take the initiative. Let me, let me put it on us. How are you taking the initiative to engage with other people? You know that brief time where we say, hey, get up and introduce yourself to someone? We don't do that because it's mandatory in the state of California to offer that time at a church. (laughs) We do that because in a small, it's an opportunity just to shake a hand and say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Do you know why we place donuts at the front? Because you will stop and talk. Because you may not know anything about the other person, but if they're holding a donut, you know they have exquisite taste. (laughs) And so you can start a conversation. But then even beyond this, how are you looking to engage? Are you engaging by getting involved in a small group to where you're gonna be able to develop relationship Are you engaging with your family by making it a priority to serve somewhere at the church? There's many of you here that faithfully come to one service and serve at another so you can engage with your family. Are you engaging by joining us at something like an all-serve or the assignment celebration? How are you engaging with your family? And especially, how are you engaging with the family members that aren't like you? that are different in age, that are different in background because we have a beautiful diversity in the kingdom of God. The second example is engage with your family. And the last fill-in is this. Actively seek the lost. Something I truly value in the example of these early believers is they didn't eject from a non-believing world. They didn't sit there and go, we're Christ followers now, so let's build walls between us and the rest of our society. They didn't go, we're Christ followers now, so that means we need to have a Christian alternative to everything we do so we can remain comfortable and remain safe. They were joyfully present in the life of their community because they viewed people that had not yet known Jesus as an opportunity to share what changed their lives. And that filled them with joy. See, their message, the message today sometimes is that being a Christian is an exclusive country club that only a few get into. The message in the example of these believers by staying present in this culture was Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is real, and Jesus loves you just as much as he loves me. And he offers you the same change that he has done in my life. What I love about the example of these believers was it was their awe that drove them. It wasn't this nervousness, sweaty palms, oh, i got to find a way to talk about Jesus. But it was a joy because of this being a turning point. It was one of those moments where you're just simply filled with joy. And you've been in those moments where you just have to tell people, Having my third kid in a few months, but almost four years ago, when my first son, Gabriel, was born. I remember after the first 24 hours after he was born, um, we had finally got fed up with the hospital food. So I was sent on a food run and I'm in Subway, and I'm an introvert. Usually when I'm in these places, I'm just quiet and I keep to myself. But I had just become a dad. I had just met my son. And so I'm in line, and people are coming in, and I'm just like, I'm not even introducing myself. I'm like, hey, I'm a dad now. <laughs> I'm a dad. The subway people are like, hey, what do you want? Full long turkey, and I'm a dad, and I'm just going on. And it's that sentiment that they had when it came to Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. Our lives are reflecting around this, and when it came to pursuing the lost, to pursuing people that had yet to know the truth about Jesus, what I love is that they spoke it with their words, but they backed it up with their lives. See, sometimes we think that the only way to tell the truth of Jesus is through words, and words can be important, but your life screams an important message because what's your priority is what you value, is what's real to you. And so these early believers were going, we're imperfect, hear me, they were imperfect. When you look at the New Testament, Paul often is correcting the early church. That gives me hope because I'm imperfect. But they were trying They were living, and that was catching people's attention. They were saying, this is my priority, and I'm going to live this out. I like how it's put in your note sheet by John Dixon. Somehow I came to assume that the only important means of promoting Christ was talking about him. Reaching out to others became for me an entirely verbal activity. But perhaps the best kept secret of Christian mission is that the Bible lists a whole range of activities that promote Christ to the world and draws others towards him. They are all mission activities and only a couple of them invoke the lips at all. What's so important about presenting a proper view of Messiah is we talked about this last week is that there's many people in our world that have a distorted view of Messiah, and there's many people in our world that along those same lines have a distorted view of his followers. What becomes the game changer is when somebody gets to actually interact with a living, breathing Christian. This may sound kind of odd, but one of my favorite books is actually a book by one of our most noted atheists in the world, a man named Richard Dawkins. He's brilliant. He's an evolutionary biologist out of England. And he wrote, he's written many books on on his studies, but he wrote a particular book called The God Delusion. And it's a fascinating book. And again, because of intelligence, he brings up good questions and it makes you think. But the thing, if you're not familiar with Richard Dawkins, is he's not just an atheist, but he's one of those atheists that wants to eliminate faith from the face of the earth. Especially when it comes to faith in Jesus. That's the purpose of his book, The God Delusion. And what he spends most of his book doing is he spends his book just calling out the absurdity of what he says, faith in Jesus. These delusional, crazy people, how could they possibly believe that? That is his rhetoric. And then about halfway three-fourths through the book, something changes. He's recounting the story of a grad student he once had. And he refers to this young man as brilliant, as competent, as an incredible student, but as confusing Because he loved God. And it was somebody he interacted with regularly. And what's interesting is in this book, his language changed because of relationship. His language didn't change as a whole, but it changed towards the person he knew. All of a sudden, this person wasn't an idiot. All of a sudden, this person was a misguided. They were just confusing because he goes, you're so smart. How is it that you believe in God? See, relationship changes things. It changes perceptions. Here at Rocky Peak, we often come back to a term called one lives. And when we think about our mission, we think about the people that God has already put in our lives, people such as family members, friends, co-workers, people you run or work out with wherever in your life, people that you have a relationship with, people that you enjoy, and people that have yet to see the truth about Jesus. And what we mean by this term, one life, these are people that we're praying for, but these are people that we are engaging in everyday relationship. We're having conversations with them, and they're not always Jesus conversations. We're sharing life with them. We're sharing moments with them. We're just present, and they're present. But ultimately, we are present as living, breathing Christians. And some of us, maybe that fills us with apprehension and go, well, I'm not perfect. There's other people that are better at this. I'm not perfect either. In fact, our imperfection is one of the best messages we can share with people that have yet to see Jesus because often they think you have to be perfect to see Jesus. The message of the Bible is not a perfect God with perfect people. It's a perfect God taking messed up imperfect people and making something amazing out of the dirt. Relationship changes things because it gives us the opportunity to not just say it, but to be a living witness and to write a new script. And to close there in your note sheet, you see Ravi Zacharias' quote, The single greatest obstacle to the impact of the gospel has not been its inability to provide answers, but the failure on our part to live it out. We have an opportunity to rewrite the script. We have an opportunity to change things, not by building walls, but by building relationships. And so as we close this morning, what I'd like to do, I'd like to invite the band to come on out And they're going to lead us in one final song this morning. And what I like about the song is this song is an exciting song. It's up temple because we're here to celebrate. See, we are the community of God. We are bound by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if the Lord is stirring, if the Lord is causing you to think, if the Lord is challenging, remember, it's because he's going to lead you to something new. And so, as family, as this community, we want to celebrate this together, celebrate that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is risen, Jesus is present in our lives, and now I am free to reflect that character. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for your amazing love and grace. Thank you that you choose us to be the ones to testify of your name, even though we're imperfect, even though we fail you still beam with pride when it comes to your children. Thank you that as the truest definition of family, you didn't give up on us. You didn't ever stop fighting for your people. In fact, you did whatever it took, which meant sacrificing your very son. Father, I pray as we as a community that we move away from simply talking about how much you mean to us. But we begin to live that out in our everyday lives. May you start taking precedence in our schedules. May you start taking precedence in our families in how we approach work, friendships, other relationships. Father, continue to show us who you are because in turn, that will give us glad and sincere hearts just like these early believers. Jesus, we love you so much and we're excited for how you're going to continue to grow us individually and for us collectively as a church. In your son's name, we all said. Hey, Jesus is alive. And that doesn't change just change things for us individually, but it changes things for our family. So as we go out today, wherever your weeks take you, may you find joy, gladness, sincerity in Jesus being your foundation. Amen? Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place today, over to my right along that wall are some amazing men and women part of our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you before you leave. Hey, next week, you guys have been awesome putting up with me for the last two weeks. Next week's Mike's back in America, and so he landed safely. He woke up at like 3.30 this morning due to the jet lag, but he's going to be back to continue our series, and it's going to be an awesome message. See, one of the core themes of Acts has been this word restoration, how Jesus restores, and an important message of restoration is going to be taught between the encounter that the apostle Peter has with a lame beggar, so you're not going to want to miss it. We'll see you then.